0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the Pro Basketball Talk podcast here at NBC Sports. So this is actually one of my favorites for a couple of reasons. The first is we're bringing in a friend of mine and just one of the best, author, frankly, the my favorite author, um, writing books on the NBA right now, Roland Lazenby. And the topic of his latest book is Magic Johnson, uh, The Life of... Irvin Magic Johnson. You can find it uh, at any of your bookstores on Amazon on at Powell's. If you're going to order online um, or wherever you, wherever you get your books. Uh, I'm excited because magic is the guy who made me fall in love with basketball and Roland. There's a, there's a 12 year old version of me throwing what can now only be described as horribly ill-advised behind the back passes uh, yeah. on the school playground. Uh <laughs> trying to imitate magic Johnson. I, I, he is the guy who made me fall in love with the game. And I, I know I'm not alone with that. No, no, not at all. He really affected a lot of people. Uh, for people who don't know, Roland has written, um, what, Michael Jordan, the life showboat, the life of Kobe Bryant, uh, my kind of my personal favorite. Cause it was a story I didn't know as well. The uh, Jerry West book and uh, blood on the horns back in the day. he has been writing about the NBA for uh, decades now. And, Took his talents to Magic Johnson on a project that took a little while because there was that little pandemic thing in the middle of it. Um, I, I imagine did that slow? I imagine that slowed your research a little bit. Well, you, you know, uh, with the data mining um, available
1: today, there there was still an awful lot of research to be done online. Um, it it really inhibited uh, me. And, and Gary Wolfel, who was helping me with oh, yeah. the interviews, it inhibited us in getting out and getting face-to-face with people. For a couple of years, we were okay. And then it all became uh, Zooms and things of that nature. And that's fine. That has become a lot of how interviews are done by yeah. a lot yeah. of people. But uh, you know, it, it's it's often really good to to get out there and see people. Um, yeah. That, but you know, those are large forces that
0: just change things. Exactly. Um, when I talk about magic to people and, and tell them that is, you know, look, well, five championships, and we can run down the long the red the MVPs, the resume. I am first quick to tell people as a Los Angeles native. I think he did more off the court in Los Angeles to impact the city, and especially even after he was done playing, than he did on the court. I
1: would agree with that, and frankly, that's why I put such an effort into the vast unknown things about Irvin from his youth. He was, and I mean, I spent lots of time interviewing his coaches and Dr. Charles Tucker and his team and uh, Magic's teammates. He was a really, really impressive young man. Very impressive.
0: And he had a huge impact on his community. And and you get into I think that's part of what fascinated me about the book. I was fortunate to get uh, an advanced copy and be able to read through it. It's it's like all your works, not only very well written but so painstakingly researched. It, it, I didn't know much about his childhood and his youth outside of of what we you know. I'm sorry, put the narrative that's out there about him coming from the, the a working class family. His dad worked on the uh, auto line, but his dad was his dad and his mom were more than that to the community
1: yes in so many ways and um in understated ways they they were not out there running for public office or 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 doing things that would get them in the newspaper they were just out there living their lives in the kinds of ways that that were important to the people around him, whether it was at church or just in the community. And um, it, it was all part of the
0: whole family MO. The kids were too. They were and magic, but even at a young age, you say magic kind of had that something like it was that smile. And he, he was lighting up rooms and, and, uh, you know, once he really started playing basketball, impacting people, kind of like people saw it early with him. Right. It, you know, it's always been something of a double-edged sword.
1: First of all, the charisma, the smile, all of those things, the hugs. Yeah. All of those things drew people to him. He just had that that huge ability to do that. But it, it also led everyone to this tremendously false assumption that he was just sort of this happy-go-lucky guy sort of dancing through his life. He was, with that happy package, from a young age, he was a determined control freak. Now, he, he controlled people in good ways but he was determined to have events go the way he wanted them to go. And in that regard, his coaches, his teammates, everybody had to really play along with the way Irvin wanted to play as Dale Beard, his high school teammate and, and best man later at his wedding, uh. Uh, told me he said i had to play the way irvin wanted me to play i couldn't play my game If, if you didn't play the way he wanted you to play you weren't going to play and the the level of that control you know by the time he got to the lakers it wasn't just teammates and of course at the Lakers he found a player he he really could not control very much and that was of course the great kareem abdul jabbar but but magic johnson had this reach it was the ushers in the arena the ball boys i, I don't care who it was the
0: people cooking the popcorn they were all on his string yeah he, uh, you could feel that around them, but I was going to ask about that because he runs into a, a strong coach in Pat Riley, a a, a you know a, a somebody who had already earned their spot with uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and also he ultimately loses a bit of that control uh, with the HIV diagnosis. Uh, true, and uh, in in terms of Riley.
1: You know, Riley was this guy. Uh, you know, I, I really thought Paul Westhead got was one of the people who got a rotten deal with winning yes. time uh, because, yes, he uh, th- there were a few things about him that that were quirky. He uh, Paul Westhead would be the first to tell you that, but he he was certainly no idiot. But he came from a school of coaching where you just weren't trying to be chummy. And in his first NBA assignment, he wins this championship. There there were still things that he had to learn. But, But what Pat Riley, who replaced Paul Westhead, knew, he had this deep understanding of the emotional factors that went with being a pro athlete, particularly a pro basketball player. And, and he understood the emotion of things about as well as anybody could, Pat Riley did. And so you had um, Irvin Johnson Magic with this tremendous emotional intelligence just off the charts. And Riley himself, a guy with a, a tremendous emotional intelligence. And so they formed this vast competitive partnership those things weren't lost on the crowd whether it was on tv but especially in the arena around the team uh you know and and magic had a great decade plus running through the annals of american sport elevating the nba as no one else could have done other than magic except maybe larry bird in their different ways, they really elevated the game to where it was a receptacle for Michael Jordan. And all of that, of course, came down in a huge, huge collapse with the announcement that Magic
0: was HIV positive. I want to go back really quickly to talking about Magic and Bird because I don't think a lot of younger people um realize i mean they they've heard the lines but i don't think they grasp the state the nba was in in 1979 when you know in 1980 when magic and bird enter the nba it, it wasn't just that the games were tape delayed and shown on midnight it was um i don't i don't know if saying an afterthought of a sport goes too far but it wasn't anywhere close to the cultural I you know cultural zeitgeist cultural powerhouse that it is now.
1: Yes, you know, in nineteen seventy-nine the ratings for um, NBA regular season games had dropped twenty-five percent. It was an epic collapse. <laughs> you had these teams losing money. You had a commissioner in in Larry O'Brien who had been a, a democratic party politician in the kennedy administration he had he had done a, a lot of good work in the merger of the nba and the aba in the late 70s but he was really sort of disengaged and things were really close to flatlining in a lot of ways but you had this young lawyer from Proskauer, the big firm in New York City, David Stern. And he had been granted a lot of power. And he was looking for those things to build around. And Larry Bird and Magic Johnson showed up immediately and provided them. It was exciting
0: from the start. And... What Magic and Bird gave the league and what Stern, I think, understood and took advantage of in a way the league hadn't before is the marketing of personalities. And Magic was... There were just none bigger than Magic. That that, Like you said, the smile, the engagement, that all just came through the television. You could feel the energy when he was in the building. Yeah, and American pro
1: basketball had never really had a comfort level. It had been in... Uh, the the NBA had been formed as the BAA, the Basketball Association of America, in 1946, right after World War II. And it had struggled for decades. The real early success that was eventually found was that the NBA would stage doubleheaders with the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> and fans would pay to see the Globetrotters. But and there was some interest, but it was it was a small core of, of interested fans in NBA games. And when Magic came along with the no-look passes and the smile and the hugs and the high fives and this energy that was it was off the charts, of course. It really was almost like they were able to package all of the charm and trickeration and fun and excitement of a Globetrotter game right there just on a regular season roster with with Magic Johnson. And, and you know, he had been creating that kind of on since grade school in gyms i mean everywhere he went throwing those no look passes uh through junior high that 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 way he just took control of a game and he would consider himself a disappointment if the fans weren't up and yelling and having fun and he said if it was blah He was just miserable. He had to have them fully engaged emotionally. And that's sort of the transformation that hit Los Angeles.
0: Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. And you talked about uh, in this book, it, it's fascinating, and I you know you covered this as well in in your Michael Jordan, the Life Biography. even though their eras, I mean they overlap but not perfectly, Magic was incredibly competitive with Jordan. He, he, I don't want to say measured himself against him, but in some ways did. and a lot of that, Kind of comes back to the shoe contract, and you know, which got its own movie, you know, in the last year, but it 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 comes back to Michael Jordan. Kind of, I don't know if Magic felt he'd earned that status yet. You know, I had to go
1: on BBC World Television the other night to talk about Magic just becoming a billionaire. <clears throat> And magic has worked his can off to be that billionaire. He's bought and sold companies. He, uh, he his yeah. agenda is really all about jobs that serve the black communities across America, insurance companies, mortgage operations, theaters, all kinds of stuff. It's really about uh, the underserved. Uh, black and minority communities in America and it's been a great thing but it's been a lot of work and so Magic all these years since he uh, left basketball has has done that yeoman's work and for the longest time it seemed he was stuck at about 600 million in wealth and he's also really furiously chasing Jordan but Jordan is on a multiplier. His his contract with Nike originally had a percentage in it. No American basketball player had gotten that to where Jordan was just getting huge amounts, 100 million a year plus, just in passive income royalty statements. and the, And the growth of his product line and then... Uh, being able to buy the the Hornets basketball team, the Bobcats, yeah. which again became the Hornets, the amount of revenue he could generate just in the growth and equity in that ownership. And so no sooner had Magic gotten to a billion than it was announced that Michael Jordan had gotten to three billion. With the sale. And yet, you know... This is going to drive Magic, I'm guessing, for another decade. He is battling furiously because what happens off the court between those two has always mattered. And Magic and Lon Rosen, as... Uh, interesting and friendly of people as they are, they don't like to discuss this subject, but it is very
0: real. And you're right on the money when you say it, Kurt. Yeah. And it comes back to the, like you said, the shoe contract, but you also touched on something with magic that I think when I said he's impact in Los Angeles off the court was bigger than on that was, that was part of it. he, the movie theaters are the glamor part of it. Uh, but he went into places where there weren't movie theaters, where there weren't grocery stores, where there was this underserved, these corporations were not putting their businesses in, in in black and largely black and Latino communities. And he went in and started to change that. He was way ahead of his time on that. He, he was, you know, Peter Goober, who of course
1: owns a chunk of the Dodgers owns a chunk of the Golden State Warriors I I did interviews with Peter Goober on the whole scenario and he didn't know magic all that well Peter Goober didn't but he was head of Sony USA in the early 90s when when magic requested a meeting and being magic he got the meeting and magic shows up with his business manager two black guys coming to talk to the head of sony about building theaters in underserved communities and and magic told him said i know a neighborhood not far from here that's loaded with people who love films and they they love going to movies and the movies that uh, houses in their neighborhoods are really old and it's they just don't have the kind of theater you need and peter goober asked what 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 place like that is near here and magic pointed out baldwin hills and here was here were two black men making this very detailed and powerful presentation to peter Goober. he had no idea he was going to buy a a theater chain or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, fund a theater chain and then buy it from Magic that day. But he turned their their numbers work over to uh, the staff. And wow, they were blown away. And the next thing you know, they embarked on this big theater building thing. One of the highlights in the book comes from a Smithsonian channel a uh, show on afrofuturism and they have Damian Scott key this professor from new york art professor who's watching black panther in the magic johnson cinema in harlem back when black panther came out yeah and he he said this is this was just a moment me sitting there in this Magic Johnson cinema, watching a film like Black Panther. This was a different kind of Black Power moment. And of course, Magic went on from that. That huge success, those theaters, as their numbers showed, began to draw people like crazy, you know, lines, long lines of people in, in Black neighborhoods to get in those theaters and set records and you know that was just a thing the momentum that really launched uh magic johnson as this business figure of course it culminated recently uh and and he and goober uh went on to do the dayton dragons they've had all kinds of partnerships together yeah. in minor league sports. They, they both own a, a share of the Dodgers. And here's the unusual thing. <clears throat> when, when Goober moved into that war, uh, Warriors ownership, they looked around for that basketball guy to, to be that figure to run things. And their first choice was magic Johnson. And Magic thought about it a long time. And he didn't tell Peter why he turned it down, but Peter knew. Goober said that Magic was just too much of Mr. Laker to go up and run the Warriors. But when Magic turned it down, they turned to another well-known Lakers figure, Jerry West, to fill that role. And a lot of people do not know that, that that Magic had that choice first. But, of course, today, the Washington commanders, he's one of the uh, figureheads of that $6 billion deal. Of course, it's not um, a huge percentage of Magic's money. It is Magic's money. All of them are. But um, he has reasserted himself in amazing ways on the
0: sports landscape. And part of that, something I didn't really know in the book, that I learned from the book, was the starting, obviously he made the, the legendary $25 million one uh, lifetime contract with the Lakers and made a lot of money for playing basketball and, and shoe deals and what have you. I didn't realize how big internationally the Magic Johnson All Stars were, and how much money he made from that. And uh, I'll let you explain what that was to people because I, I knew of it at the time, but I was I you know I don't want to say dismissive, but nobody stateside we didn't pay a ton of attention to it. But that's not where the market was,
1: right? Uh, that and that came in the wake of the Dream Team and the huge, huge hunger. And, and market that created for American pro basketball. And uh, y- you could argue that Magic's first big business success, even before the theaters became the Magic Johnson All-Stars, it wasn't something that was going to be big in the sports pages of the United States. But he was virtually, he may have even played games on Antarctica. I don't think so. But he was on <laughs> every continent. He was flying his team around in Lear jets, and he was making so much money doing it. He was racking up what we would think of as a 21st century superstar payday running the Magic Johnson All-Stars, and he had enough left over to pay the guys that went along with him really, really, really well. And he took that brand of basketball that he so loved, fast-breaking, no-looking, high-fiving, all of that stuff. He took it on virtually in every culture, in Asia, in Europe, uh, name a culture. He was there playing that and traveling and making lots of money
0: and it it, yeah, it raised the it raised the bar and I knew of it at the time but it's kind of crazy like reading the book because I just at the like I said out here stateside we you know we were focused on the NBA and what was next and uh magic had had a vision for that international game that has certainly come to pass where so much of the uh the NBA uh, money comes from now and the future growth is and also I think you thought uh, something you talked about that was interesting was that the HIV the reaction to his HIV announcement stateside versus internationally was very different.
1: America's been a climate of fear often on for its entire history. Just one thing or another drives fear to irrational levels. It's always a big factor in our politics which party can stir up the most fear and anxiety. Yeah. But boy, um, you know HIV really made a good run at stirring up fear and anxiety. It was really ugly a lot of it in the early 90s. That was not the case in Europe. and that th- those teams you know they played all over the place in those exhibition games, Magic Johnson All-Stars. And you know HIV
0: was not an issue. Do you think he helped change attitudes domestically? Or or at least change the perception that this was a gay disease and it 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 opened some people's minds to the idea that this was bigger than that? I don't think there's any question of that. I think that he
1: got attention brought, and he wasn't doing this intentionally, but he did make the conscious, dramatic decision to step in the middle of it and Offer his messages, and to offer his perspective, and to be that person. And so, yes, I. You know, if that had not happened, I just don't see um, such a dramatic presentation of the circumstances. By anybody else, the shock of all that. Magic, this beloved figure. You know, yeah. you know, just I I remember talking to Kobe Bryant about it. And this is when Kobe was like 18 or 19. I was doing an interview with him, and he was recalling when he was 13 and he and his family were in Europe, and they had long Joe Bryant jelly bean had kobe's dad had so long worshipped magic as this tall guy who did things nobody else could and jelly bean had been a tall guy who wanted to play like magic he did not have anywhere near the fire and grit and desire of magic but he had that kind of fun loving bouncy game and so kobe as a as a kid growing up in Italy had studied all the videotape magic was his As Kobe told me his passes used to drive me nuts. <laughs> and, and uh, when that news hit that, uh, the Bryants were over there getting ready to start another European season. The whole Bryant family just packed up and came home like a, a star, a God in the sky had, had fallen out of that sky and they had to come home and survey everything. And Kobe was inconsolable at age 13 for a week. I remember I was 12 when my dog got killed on my paper route, got hit by a car, and I had that sort of youthful grief. I mean, there was just no bottom to it. And to hear Kobe talk about it, it immediately made me think, of when my dog got killed on my paper route, and that's what an impact it had on Kobe and millions of others.
0: You mentioned the grit. I mean, we kind of associate Magic now with Showtime, and like you said, the the YouTube highlight packages of the the the, the fast break passes and the no looks and all that. That Laker team gets a little undercredited for how gritty it was with with uh, Kurt Rambis and, and company. And Magic was part of that. Like he, he'd mix it up. Like this wasn't, he couldn't, he could do more than just play pretty basketball. Right. And of course, they had Norm Nixon.
1: They had a system, as Paul Westhead uh reminisce with me, they had a system where they had two point guards. Yeah. And, but more and more as the season wore on, the, the whole secret to Magic's kingdom was defensive rebounding. Because that put the ball in his hands. That was true in grade school. It was true in high school. He had that quick yep. ability to the ball, that that ability just to find the defensive rebound. And there is not a, a sweatier, dirtier, uh, more blue-collar job in all of basketball. Kurt, I, yeah. I, you know all this far better than <laughs> I do. There's not. And no. that was the key to, to the world that Magic then opened because he was up the court, putting pressure on the defense, getting downhill on everybody, telling those guys, you, you better fill the lane, you better be awake or you're going to get hit. And, you know, it was one thing to tell your high school teammates that. It was even another to tell your college teammates that. But when you come into the NBA and you're telling pro athletes they're going to get hit upside the head and embarrassed, that that was not an easy play. And it took time. There was – I I think I would be remiss if I didn't say – That the other thing about um, those great Lakers Showtime teams was their intelligence. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, Kareem is considered one of the most intelligent basketball players ever. And obviously very bookish, the great Sphinx, but the guy that was the great half-court weapon uh, but Jim Jones in, in his interviews for this book said, you know, Kareem had a, a great intelligence, a fantastic, but he said, I really think his intelligence was second to magics. And, uh, y- you know, a lot of people, probably because again, of the smile and the sort of down home way yeah. he would conduct things they, they tended to underestimate the, the deep uh, emotional intelligence, the, the absolute understanding of the environment, the understanding of all things, not only to see them, but to track them and control them. And that was sort of the machinery behind the, the Oz format that he presented. And magic had that machinery. He
0: was and is and remains a very bright man. And his control was exerted more with, like you said, smiles and hugs—more honey than vinegar. Yeah, but he—he could—he could get on
1: the vinegar. He—he—he <laughs> uh, he, he could, uh, you know. He—he he, these guys—they adored him, but you know, he could—he could get on Coop. He could get on his high school teammates. There was always an agenda with Irvin. And, and you better step two when, when his agenda's there. You, you, you better do your part. And you better not be um, slack or goofy or waste time. And uh, he, he could do it swiftly. You know, you, you wouldn't see him get out of, character a lot w- with the happy face but in the middle of a game
0: it could get righteous my dealings my, my limited comparatively dealings with magic I, I, I think one of the things that has stood out to me is that he does genuinely still seem to have a, a sense of his roots in a way that sometimes not every player keeps Um a sense that were he not 6'9", and kind of gifted athletically the way he was, he might have followed his dad's footsteps and been working on the assembly line in Detroit and had the side business, you know, a couple side businesses really going. Like, he doesn't, he's not one of those guys who's like, you know, I, I if I hadn't been this, I'd have been a senator. I'm not sure that's who he thought he was. Uh, you know, he's never chosen an easy path. Um,
1: And and the the whole picture of magic is it's all easy. Uh, His father didn't have it easy. His mother didn't have it easy. The generations, I did all the data mining to go back. I was able to trace his family into the 1830s. Theirs was not an easy path. And this obviously is typical of a lot of American families and typical of black American families. Theirs was not an easy path, but boy, there were distinguished people even in uh, his family coming out of slavery. And, and I will say that um, it's a family so steeped in work ethic um, and, and, And and, you know, it's the smile and, and the showtime approach. All that stuff really didn't open the window to all of that grit, all of that determination, all of that desire, that refusal in so many ways. And, you know, it was not easy. He likes to pretend he was winner, 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 chicken dinner all the time. And that is not, he had some really terrible moments in high school failing on teams that probably could have won and should have won state championships before they finally won it. And when his Everett High School team did win it, Magic had fouled out. And so at NC, I mean, excuse me, at Michigan State, it was a battle. He did not get along with Judd Heathcote. Judd Heathcote hated the idea that Magic Johnson would pass the ball off the damn dribble, but that was (laughs) his gift. He could pass the ball off the dribble in, in amazing ways, and he unsettled the whole basketball landscape with his ability to do that. But before he could, he had to do a lot of battle with Judd Heathcote. And so his determination won out. But the other thing that helped him win out was the relationship he had with his own father. He had so much respect for Irvin Sr. That's why he went to Michigan State. Irvin Sr. wouldn't tell him. He wanted him to go to Michigan State, but Magic knew it. And Magic wanted to go other places, did not want to play for Judd Heathcote. And his father never said do this. But Magic grew as a man from a boy into a man by doing what his father wanted him to do. And a year later, when he had all this money offered to him to go to the Kansas City Kings, again, Irvin Sr. wouldn't tell him, don't go. But Irvin knew as badly as he wanted to get out of college basketball and go on to the challenge of the NBA, he knew that's not what his father wanted. So he stayed. And by staying, he met Larry Bird in the 1979 NCAA championship the highest ratings for a champ a college championship in history and they took those ratings into the NBA with them and so in in so many ways you could say this great story of Magic Johnson and the 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 making of basketball into a global sport all stemmed from this incredible relationship he had with his own father that he loved so dearly and who we just lost earlier this year.
0: Roland, I think what makes your book so readable and so so much fun to read is that there is a string, there is a theme um, that ties it together, um, ties the, a player's family history and situation to the person they become. What was the theme with this one?
1: Well, you know, I I often begin by thinking about the women in any, in the long history of any family. That's particularly true of the sharecropper women. You know, Michael Jordan's mother and Magic's mother both emerged from that sharecropper culture of North Carolina, a a place that had more Klan members than all the Southern states combined. A harsh climate, and and the brutal workload, the silhouette of a woman hauling water stooped over under the weight of it. Um, That was the world, And, and just as Michael's mother was this spectacular woman, Son of said, the most impressive woman he ever met, Magic Johnson's own mother, Christine, and her family emerged from this tremendously negative and difficult environment. It is, without a doubt, a sacred and holy American story, the march to freedom, the freedom to be everyday citizens, to have uh, the things that other families in America have and nothing epitomizes it for me more than the family of Magic Johnson and I you know I, I wasn't able to trace Michael Jordan. Back past his great great grandfather, excuse me, his great grandfather, Dawson Jordan. And that story was amazing in my book, Michael Jordan, The Life. But with data mining in the nine years since that book came out, I was able to trace Magic Johnson's family back and to look at his family and all the census records, all their um, hardships. Uh, you know, you, you can see so much in census records and you can see the struggles, the narrative of that family and to see it end in this kind of victory in a in a great, great, great grandson uh, of, of great, great, great grandparents, a billionaire who has done it his singular way. It's just a, a, a very powerful story emotionally. It was powerful for me to write. It's powerful for me to talk about. I can't imagine how powerful it is for Irvin Johnson to live it.
0: No, and it's very powerful to read it. Um, I can't recommend the, the book enough. I Like I said, I was lucky to uh, get a, an advanced copy um, and... and- Read through it on my vacation up in Maine. Uh, this summer there's nothing quite like. There's nothing quite like sitting on a porch on a beautiful summer day, just <laughs> with a nice view of the ocean and uh, and and reading a book. And and this was a perfect companion for that. So I, it, it is a, like you said, it's a powerful read. It's a great story. It's a story where a lot of people know the highlights, but th- the context that you bring to it is fantastic, Roland. And I, I can't recommend people out there uh, pick this up and, and it makes a great Christmas gift for your basketball loving friends. Um, Magic Johnson, the life of Irvin Magic Johnson is available everywhere now, Roland. Thank you. Thank you for writing this. And, and thank you for the time. Thank you for
1: the time, Kurt. Um, I, I'm not sure anybody understands my work the way you do. So I have a deep, deep, deep appreciation for you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And I look forward to, uh, we'll hook up when, when you're moving and you're out here in Southern California on your book tour. Um, you know, this copy isn't signed. It's it's a flaw. We're going to have to remedy buddy.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I'm going to have to get the publisher to send you the hardcover version of that. (laughs) And when I'm out there, you you know, uh,
0: I look forward to grabbing a beer and, and And sign it. I look forward to it too. Thank you everybody. And thank you everybody for listening. We will be back. Uh, soon, uh, next week, either later this week or next week, I've got some stuff in the air that I, if I say now I will jinx, um, otherwise <laughs> we'll be back soon with the next edition of the pro basketball talk podcast here at NBC sports.